welcome to episode 31 of Brain Tools for another special guest episode with, to be honest, someone we really, really admire. Her name is Anne Lawler-Kumpf. She's an ex-Googler that then went on to complete her Masters of Applied Neuroscience at King's College. And what's more now, she's the founder of Nest Labs, a mindful productivity school at the intersection of neuroscience and entrepreneurship. What's more, her work has been featured in Wired, Forbes, Rolling Stone, and thousands of people are signed up to her newsletter, Maker Mind, which is very, very practical. Which leads me to say, this was such a practical conversation with so many easy to use frameworks. And for me personally, redefine what productivity was, is, and continues to be. The thing that Sam and I were so impressed by, speaking for Sam, was that she was so authentic and genuine and her ability to make content relatable and easy to understand, especially given its neuroscience, was incredibly impressive. Sam, what can people expect to learn in this episode? That's right. And this week, you're going to learn from Anne-Law about toxic productivity, how to be more mindful while staying productive, making much better decisions, and what not to do instead of those smart goals we're always told we should do, how to make packs to keep habits and goals instead. Really excited. So let's get into this. Here we are, another episode of the Brain Tools Podcast, and we've got a very special one and a very special guest here today. But as always, joined by my friend, my confidant, Samuel. How are you, Sam? Very well, thanks, Kieran. And very excited today, we have someone we've been following uh, for quite some time now. I really admire her clarity in expressing neuroscience simply uh, with a bias towards action and a perspective on productivity and mindfulness and integrating neuroscience and cognitive science with that, which I find personally has been really, really valuable for me uh, in our journey as creators. So we're super excited to have Anne-Laure Leconf, the founder of Nest Labs, with us. And welcome to Brain Tools. Thanks so much for having me, Karen Sam. It's amazing to finally get to chat together. Yeah, we are, we are very, very excited. And I think doing a bit of research for this episode, we know you've had an incredible journey from you know, marketing at Google to Nest Labs and now Make a Mind in London. I remember distinctly listening to a podcast that a big part of your transition out was burnout. If you don't mind, could you share the story behind you know, how Nest Labs and Make a Mind came to be and what led you here? Absolutely. So I started my career at Google first in London and then in San Francisco and I was absolutely excited to be there. I was one of the many people who were there, I discovered later, who were probably going through a little bit of imposter syndrome because every day I was thinking, someone's going to realize I have no right to be here. Everyone is too smart. Everyone is too talented. Everyone is too creative. And I am definitely not someone who is at the same level. So. As a result, I was working really, really hard. I was yes, saying yes to every single project. If you needed help with anything, you could come and see me and I would say, absolutely, I'll carve the time. I'll make sure to help you. And I didn't realize at the time because it was my first job that that was absolutely not sustainable. And that something that I did know, but I decided to ignore at the time is that there are only 24 hours in a day and you need to use some of them to sleep and eat and relax and and even better if you can actually see your friends and family. So I was working nonstop and I burnt out. That was the very first time in my life it happened to me. I used to be someone who was pretty organized, who knew how to manage my time. And I, I knew it existed, but I thought it would never happen to me. And that's often the case 
with productive people who are ambitious. We're like, yeah, I get it. I get it. It happens to some people, but you know, I'm fine. So I started looking up resources around burnout because again, that was this vague thing I knew some people experienced, but I had never really researched it or looked it up seriously. And all of the resources I could find online were for people who hated their jobs, people who really didn't feel in control, who were like, I hate my boss, I hate the projects I'm working on, I'm working too hard, I'm burning out. But there was nothing for my situation, which was, I actually love my job. I actually really like my colleagues. I enjoy what I'm working on. I'm excited about it, but I'm still burning out right now. I'm, I'm passionate, I'm ambitious, and I'm burning out. And there was nothing there. And at the time, I didn't do anything about it. But that was the, the first time that kind of question popped in my mind, into my mind, thinking, how come there's no resources for people who love their jobs and who are going through this experience? And a few years later, I left Google and I started a startup. And lo and behold, I burned out again while working on the project. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it was, it was similar in the sense that, again, I was very passionate about the project I was working on. That was probably one of the causes of the burnout, the fact that I wanted to do absolutely everything. I was taking too much on and, uh, and I really wanted it to succeed. So this startup didn't work out, not because I briefly burned out for other reasons, but after this startup didn't work out, I kind of decided to go back to the drawing board because I didn't really know what I wanted to do next. Um, I didn't feel like I wanted to work on the, another startup, at least not straight away. And so I I did something that I really like doing, always like doing, which is journaling for self-reflection, trying to kind of think about what do you actually want? Where do you want to go? How do you actually feel? And trying to really be in touch with your thoughts and your emotions. And I decided through this exercise to go back to school to study neuroscience because throughout all this and even throughout my childhood, my whole life, I've always been fascinated about the brain. And I think a lot of uh, the, the questions we ask about what we want, how we behave, what we feel, uh, could be solved a little bit better if we had a better understanding of how the brain works. So went back to school and I decided to write about what I was learning in school and trying to help people who, again, like me, were ambitious, creative, curious, and passionate, but didn't have the tools to manage the way their mind worked. Not people who hated their jobs, people who actually really liked their jobs. And this is how Neslab started. I took everything I was learning in school and try to translate it in, in a language that was a bit more practical for people who were not necessarily academics or scientists or researchers, that they could apply in their daily work to think better, make better decisions, and also take care of their mental health. So that's the story. Yeah, wow. That's an incredible story. And a lot of that really resonates with me, specifically the fact that people who are ambitious and high-performing people who are really productive, often overcommitment is their worst enemy. Um, I, it sounds like that's probably the same for you as well, especially when we, we overstretch ourselves by saying yes. I know that I do that personally a lot. And interesting that you, you made that pathway through journaling because I find that's quite a powerful uh, self-reflective exercise as well. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of journaling for this. I also think that sometimes just talking about it with someone can be helpful. So I'm not saying that, Journaling is not necessary for everyone. I know some people hate it and that's okay. 
I mean, you've started Braintool, so you know that not all tools are for everyone. It's really about building your own toolbox, what works for you. So there are all self other self-reflection methods that work. But for me, in this case, there was so much to untangle that putting it on paper was incredibly helpful. Yeah, give you that clarification of thought. There's something about writing uh, your thoughts down that makes them much more clear or shows you how messy they are. So I don't know about you, but Kieran and I both talk about the fact that we're a little bit exhausted by all the rhetoric around productivity, which kind of saturates the, the tech and the startup world. There's this an obsession with being more productive and, and getting more things done. And reading uh, your recent tweet actually on toxic productivity and self-worth really resonated deeply with me. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that notion of toxic productivity and if there were any specific strategies you could recommend to avoid falling into that trap. Yeah, so I realized when looking around, even looking at myself, that sometimes I was beating myself up for not being productive enough, but that didn't come from intrinsic motivation. That came from that fear of being judged or that fear of disappointing other people. And that I was basically, as that's what I put in the tweet, right? That I was tying my self-worth to how much I produced, which is almost an industrial view of our place in society. I produce, I contribute, therefore I am useful. And if I don't, if at some point I decide to take a break or that I don't want to contribute as much, that I'm not, that I'm not a helpful, useful member of the society anymore. And that's incredibly toxic because life happens because we're not machines, we're not robots. We're not supposed to produce as much as possible. And sometimes producing less can actually be better. So this is what I think of as toxic productivity when it's productivity at all cost and productivity for the sake of productivity. And what I find really unfortunate is that there's a whole market that has grown based on, on this, people selling self-help books and courses and coaching packages that are incredibly expensive to try and almost fix people who are not productive enough when productivity should really never be the end goal. And these are very often uh, can be rec recognized because they're giving you unrealistic demands. I see you, you see those productivity gurus on YouTube who are like, by 5 a.m. I'm at inbox. No, yeah. <laughs> Working 72 hours a day. Exactly. It's insane. And also sometimes I think that would be a fun exercise actually to go through these videos and to add up the times because I'm sure it doesn't add up to 24 hours. They do so much. Oh, no and like, this is not possible. It's like you don't even have time for a toilet break in your day. You're just a machine, just like constantly doing productive stuff. And even when you're not doing productive stuff, you're doing the right thing that we're supposed to do. You're meditating or you're doing something like this when really, let's be honest, we're human beings. And sometimes I just want to sit on my sofa and watch Netflix. And that's okay. Everyone does it. Don't tell me these people don't do it. But obviously they will tell you that no, they don't because their day is perfectly organized. So I think uh, in terms of 
how we can protect ourselves from toxic productivity and manage it when we fall prey to it. So one of the first things I think is if we can avoid falling prey to it in the in the first place, that's great. So recognizing those signs we just discussed. I know it sounds funny, but sometimes we just don't see them. The fact that really this program makes no sense uh, or that this system is promising you to completely change the way you work and live in three days, that that's not going to happen. It takes a long time to form new habits, um, to change your behavior. So that's not going to happen. And so anything that looks unrealistic or anything that is delivered by someone who sounds like they've got it all figured out and who are telling you, I have the perfect system that's going to work for everyone. I think those are red flags that if, if possible, if we can see them before falling prey to them, that's the best. And if that has happened, if we are in this place where we're feeling like a lower sense of self-esteem because we're not feeling as productive as society is telling us to be and we start feeling that it's impacting our mental health, I think going back to the basics and asking yourself, what is it exactly that I'm trying to achieve here? What do I actually want in life? What do I actually want in work? Uh, do I actually need a system for this? Or can I just get on with it and do the work? Maybe that's just easier instead of overthinking it. Um, and also just knowing that taking breaks is completely okay. Uh, that if you're if you have ambitious goals, you need to make it sustainable for yourself. So it's absolutely okay if you have one or two days or even a week where you're not productive, that's fine, right? It's more about your long-term goals. So being kind to yourself and going back to the basics, I think are two really good ways to fight toxic productivity when you kind of already felt prey to it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because as you said, like if you are viewing productivity as a goal, it can become a really vicious cycle and the feedback loop sort of incubates yourself so you can get trapped in your mind and you can cease to obviously be productive in the end because you, as you said, you can fall and to burnout. And I think what it's aligning with my thought anyway is that it's sometimes difficult for people to understand what the purpose of productivity is, as you've said. You know, people can get so caught up, so caught up in like trying to optimize the wrong thing. It's akin to traveling far in the wrong direction. Um, and I, I, as you said, you recognize through journaling that, you know, you were experiencing that burnout. What are some of the questions that you ask yourself and other people when they're in a productivity slump or they're experiencing burnout to, you know, aid that self-reflection process? Um, I really like, I think it was developed at the University of California in Berkeley. Um, I really like the 3C model of motivation. Um, so it basically looks at the the three um, key areas that are making us feel motivated or not motivated and which can impact our productivity or lead to burnout. So you basically have first your explicit motives. So this is what we tell ourselves in a conscious way. So it's when you're telling yourself, this is the reason why I want to work on this, or this is the reason why I want to achieve this goal. Then you have, and these are the ones we often have a bit of a harder time dealing with your implicit motives, your unconscious ones. Because sometimes we tell ourselves where we want to achieve a goal or we want to work on a project because we're passionate about it. When really maybe the real reason is that you want to impress a colleague that you like or that uh, you feel like this would 
bring you closer to a promotion or whatever and that you really want to be recognized for your work because you feel like in the past year no one has been recognizing your work at the level they should have so the implicit motives are the ones where they're a bit more unconscious and we often hide them uh, from ourselves and then the last uh, part of the that 3c model of motivation actually I don't even know why it's called 3C because there's no, <laughs> but it, I know it's called 3C, but it's the first time I'm thinking about it. I'm like, why is it called 3C? Um, so I need to look that up later. The, the last one is our perceived abilities. So it's what we think we're able of doing, basically. So it's the skills that you think that you have. And it's important here to remember it's the perceived abilities. Doesn't necessarily mean those are the skills you have, but that's how you see your own skills. And because it's a bit hard to remember all of these, I like the, the model that they develop to make it easier for people to remember and to use that model and to ask yourselves those questions when you're either in a productivity slump or you're burning out. And the, the key question is to ask yourself, if I'm experiencing a productivity slump or I'm burning out, is it coming from my head, my heart or my hand? And so the head is the rational part is the question is, is this task really important to me? And is it relevant to my goals? So that's the rational part. Is your head really aligned with the, the goal, with the thing that you're trying to, to achieve? The second question is for the, the heart. Do I really enjoy this task? Because sometimes you know you should be doing something. The head is agreeing to the task, but you're bored you don't find it interesting the heart is not there so that's the second one and last one the hand am i good at this task again your head may tell you we really need to do this the heart is like that looks like so much fun and the hand is like i'm so bad at this i, I can't draw or i'm bad at math or whatever i don't have the skills to make it happen so those three questions to me have always been super helpful and then in terms of how you use these questions to kind of move forward because if you, you identify that it's one or the other well great but what do you do about it so if if it's the head if you, you rationally you realize that maybe you should not be working on this so either you just kill the task because sometimes actually you don't need to do the thing you just added it to your to-do list because someone said so or because it Maybe you read somewhere that that's what you were supposed to do, but it doesn't make sense. So just don't do it. Or if you're not the right person to do it, you can also delegate it. If you're working with a team, just ask someone else who, who's, where it makes more sense for them to do it, to, to, to work on it. If you don't enjoy the task, but actually you know you should be doing it and you do have the skills, you can reframe it to make it more enjoyable. You can promise yourself a little reward afterwards but basically try to make it a little bit more fun for yourself because in any case, you know you have to do it. And if it, the, the, the hand, if you're lacking the skills, um, again, what you could do is delegate it to someone else, but if rationally you know you're the right person to do it, this could be the right opportunity to actually acquire the skill that you don't have, or you could get help from someone, either in the form of coaching or mentoring from a colleague or a friend. But the, the fact that you need to do the task doesn't mean you need to do it alone. And it can help with a productivity slump or burnout to just get someone to give you, literally to give you a hand in this case. So yeah, those are the questions I like to ask myself. 
Yeah, well, I like that frame of trying to figure out the source, the source of it and using those questions as a framework to find that source and working backwards from there. Because I think a lot of people, myself included, probably just get overwhelmed and try a million different things rather than actually diagnosing what the cause is beforehand. Um, I really loved your article on neuromyths and I know I'm a little bit biased because I have a podcast that I share with Kieran called Brain Tools and I'm a little bit obsessed with the brain, but also I just know there's such a high volume of content out there that is borderline uh, completely irreputable when it comes to neuroscience. So I was wondering if you could you'd talk to some of those neuromyths uh, for the people listening today. Um, yeah. Oh gosh, there are so many. Here's your long list. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which one do you want to choose? <laughs> okay, so, so I guess one a very prevalent one is that we only use ten percent of our brain. And as you know, mm. there's been quite a few movies actually that are based on on it. Uh, there's uh, Limitless with Bradley Cooper. There's uh, Lucy with Scarlett Johansson. So there are quite a few movie that use that trope because it's it's a neuromyth that makes us feel good makes us feel good because we feel like whatever i am today whatever i have achieved whatever i have learned however smart i am today this is only 10 percent of my brain capacity i could technically do more i could unlock that um it's so it's um you know it uh makes us it makes us feel good about ourselves and i think this is why there's so many superheroes or heroes whatever they're based on that trope that they actually have unlocked 100 percent of their their brain uh it's absolutely uh not true uh there are different origins like people who mention like different sentences like william james said that it's something like it's very unlikely that we ever uh reach the full capacity of our brains never use 10% in the way he talked about it. But uh, yeah, it's this thing with uh, facts. If they sound good, even if they're wrong, they spread very, very fast. So now lots of people think this. So yeah, we, we use we use all of our brain. The The reason why if listeners or some listeners are not convinced is that in terms of energy, our whole body is extremely efficient. In order to survive, we can't really afford to waste energy for stuff that's completely useless. So the brain is already the part of our body that is using the most energy. So there's no reason for it to actually only be working at 10% of its capacity while using so much energy. Another uh, reason why we know we're not using only 10% of our brain is that thanks to functional brain imaging, uh, we know now that whenever the brain is doing literally any type of activity, pretty much the whole brain is activated. There's always something humming in the background, the, the different parts of the brain uh, communicating together. So we, we never really have only 10% of the brain that's working. So so that's one. I guess another one would be that we're either left brain or right brain. And it's mm -hmm. it's similar to what I just said about the whole brain is being engaged whenever you're doing anything. So you're not left brain or right brain. Yes, some activities engage a little bit more of the right side of the brain and others the left brain side of the brain. But as a person, nobody is left brain or right brain. And so any teaching methods, courses that are based on the whether you're right brain or left brain is not based on evidence at all. So that would be another one. 
Yeah, that, that one aligns well with um, the model of what when VAK, uh, visual auditory kinesthetics, went rife, was it, in the early oh. 2000s? And you're just sitting there, like it really leverages confirmation bias, doesn't it? Where, you know, someone's like, oh, I'm a visual learner. And then someone tells me I'm a visual learner. Of course I'm a visual learner. And therefore I'm going to ignore everything else. I don't know if you've seen that before, but that's one that sort of links with what you were saying. It's so bad. And the, the problem is that I can't remember the exact number, but they did a survey with teachers and the number of, teachers in primary schools who believe that learning styles are real and that this this model um, is real as well and who are adapting the way they teach to to students based on what the test is saying if they're uh, visual um, or auditory learners etc is so bad I I need to look up the number later I can't remember what it is but it was really really high I was shocked when I read that survey yeah, and it's, as you said, there's a bit of a disconnect between how teachers may teach and how students actually learn. And that the VAC model has always uh, ground our gears here at BrainTools, and we're glad it grounds yours as well. Um, on, a, on a slightly different note, um, we saw also this terminology which we really liked, which was flexible consistency. Can you just talk to a little bit about what that is and how people listening can use that? Absolutely. So, um, you know how a lot of people in the productivity space are talking about the importance of consistency. And I absolutely agree with this, but the problem is that it doesn't take into account the fact that sometimes, you know, life gets in the way. Um, life is chaotic and, and sometimes things will actually go wrong. The problem with the a rigid approach to consistency saying that you absolutely need to stick to your plan all the time is that when life happens and you don't manage to stick to your plan, you may actually just stop, like, you know, derail your, your routine completely and just having an, an old of nothing nothing approach to, to, to your project. So to me, flexible consistency is really about having principles that you can use to bounce back whenever things happen, uh, when things don't go to plan. Um, there's actually a, a quote from Aldous Huxley that I, I really like which says the only completely consistent people are the dead. And uh, <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. I absolutely love this quote. And, and I think this is a, a really good quote to go with the, the concept of flexible consistency. So you can be consistent, but completely consistent is a bit worrying. Um, and so, yeah, in terms of how it works, uh, there are a few principles that you can apply. So, it is, it is actually really good to have a plan. So in my case, for my newsletter, sending the newsletter every week, that's the plan, right? But also sometimes things happen. So you should plan for being consistent, but you should also plan for disruption because disruption will happen. Uh, things that you could not predict will happen. And so in that case, what is your uh, so-to-called contingent contingency plan like what do you do in that case so for example um if you plan to run uh once a week on wednesdays and something happens you can say well i will do it on the weekend instead um if uh if you're in my case i have skipped a couple of newsletters in two years i've skipped two i think which i think is completely fine and then so my plan is just if really something happens i will skip it and i will do it the next week or i could do it uh, another day after etc so just kind of think about what would happen and what uh, if things don't go to plan what's the the plan b that you're going to use 
another important part is to reflect on what didn't go well when that happens. So next time something similar happens, you already have a plan of attack and it's way less stressful for you. I really like the expression, felt, felt like a scientist, because when you're a scientist, a researcher, you, you are not designing an experiment with the goal of succeeding because you don't even know what success looks like at this stage. You're designing an experiment with the goal of learning something. So it's the same with flexible consistency. Every time something doesn't work out or the result is not what you expected, just try and learn from it. Practice a growth mindset and try to apply whatever you learn to the next time uh, some, some similar type of unpredictable events happens. And lastly, so this is something I stole from James Clear. I really like his work and uh, I like the expression like he when he talks about consistency, he talks about schedule over scope. So instead of forcing yourself to say, I'm going to run X number of miles, if th things happen and you can't do it, you only have half an hour now instead of an hour, just run for half an hour. It's okay. So it's better to stick to your routine uh, in terms of schedule and keeping on doing it, let's say every week or every day, rather than trying to stick to a certain number of words you want to write, number of miles you want to run, uh, etc. So that's another another thing that helps a lot with flexible consistency. Mm, so many nuggets of wisdom there. Flexible consistency, the enemy of the hyper-productive influences of the world. <laughs> I love it. Um, <laughs> I'm also thinking... <laughs> That, that concept of not beating yourself up when you do miss a day at the gym is really, really important for continuing the momentum and, and having that flexibility in there. Because uh, as you probably know from, from the science and as we do too, is that when you start to create these negative stigmas around your actions or you start to frame them in that light, it can be really hard and demotivating because you're actually creating some form of negative stimulus uh, around it particularly. So for a bit of context, I used to work in the HR technology space uh, where smart goals are everywhere. They're so pervasive. And I know I tried them many times. They didn't really work for me. I know you've you've written an article about them. Uh, and I was curious to, to get your perspective on why you think smart goals don't work as effectively as people claim they do. And maybe if you could explain PACs as well, because I really, I really love that frame. Oh, I really don't like smart goals. Um, oh, neither. Thank I love God that response. That. Just bang. I hate it. <laughs> oh. I, um, I reckon I've done 200 before and it's stuck to about two. <laughs> no, they're, they're so, they're bad. Like again, to, to me, they're, they're parts of like the, the many things we have in our toolkits that treat us like machines. And I really don't yeah. like it. Um, so for, I guess for the, the benefits of your listeners, for people who don't know, I think so it's specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, timely. And um, I think some people have uh, variations of this, but for the purpose of looking at why they're bad, let's, let's go with this uh, specific translation of the acronym. Um, so th that's, the, that's the reason why. And like, again, think of a, to me, that sounds like a, a computer task has to be very specific, has to be measurable. So, you know, very well defined, clear. You have to be able to measure your progress towards the, the goal. 
achievable because obviously you should absolutely not try and do something that seems too ambitious, relevant to what you're doing right now that's aligned with your current priorities and timely with like a very clear timeline. So it needs to have a start date and uh, an end date. So that's SMART goals. The reason why I hate them is that it really encourages you. It's not even, to me, it, it sounds almost like something that you would do for, for tasks rather than, than goals. Um, it encourages you to do things that are highly relevant to you right now. So you should really not try and have a goal that is not relevant to you right now, but could be relevant to you in the future. Has to feel achievable. So don't you dare be too ambitious and try to have a goal that doesn't seem attainable right now and that may seem impossible to, to you. If it's something that you can't measure, measure, don't do it. Um, so, you know, if it's just like something that is uh, good, that makes you feel better about yourself, good for your mental health, that you can't really track, don't do it. Um, yeah, so there's the, and timely again, like there are so many people who have built really good healthy habits into their lives and who have had, you know, who have those goals that they're renewing every week, but why would they stay at an end date? So there's so many things that are wrong with it. Um, and instead, I personally use something I call PACT goals, uh, so which stands for purposeful, actionable, continuous, and trackable. So the reason why it's so different is that purposeful, uh, instead of being uh, relevant, uh, I'd rather do something that is uh, meaningful to me long-term, to my purpose in life, and not necessarily that's relevant to me right now. So, for example, you know, when I decided to learn how to code, that was not relevant to me right now, but this is something that I always wanted to, to do and I always thought would be useful at some point in my life. So it was not relevant to me right now, would not fit with the SMART framework of setting goals, um, but it was purposeful. And actually, I'm so happy I did it because it has come quite handy in afterwards. And it was really just fun for me to, to do. Uh, it was a fun goal for me to have. So purposeful is the P. Actionable. So uh, again, like instead of it being measurable, I don't necessarily want something that I can measure, that I can count, but I want something that's actionable and controllable. So instead of focusing on a measurement that I may not have control over, I just want something that I can do something about that it's, is in my control. Uh, so instead of thinking of all of those distant outcomes, I can decide about what can I do today to bring me closer to my goal without actually over planning and over thinking. So something I can take action on. Then continuous is the C impact. So I want something that I can keep on doing that is simple and repeatable. There are so many goals that people don't manage to achieve because they're going through analysis paralysis or choice paralysis. They have so many options as to how they can progress towards the goal. So picking something that's easy and continuous that you can do every day. So that could be, in my case for coding, that was 30 minutes of coding every day. That's it. If I wanted to do a bit more, I could do a bit more. Uh, but that's it. 30 minutes of coding every day. I didn't have to overthink it. Uh, I didn't have to think about how am I going to measure it. And that brings me to the last one. Trackable, again, not measurable. The only thing I ask myself when I'm using a packed goal is, did I do the thing or not? It's a yes or no. 
So I don't know if you're familiar with the trackers on GitHub that developers have that shows if they did, they coded that day or not. So that's similar to me. So have you coded today? Have you published your, have you written today for, for your, your blog posts? Uh, have you called potential customers? Um, you know, have you meditated? Have you do what? Yes or no, basically super easy. You're not using like words, um, you know, ways of measuring things that are very hard to measure. You're just asking yourself, yes or no, have I done it or not? And I think this is amazing to me. That works really well because goals can be ambitious. They can be long-term. Uh, I think life would be really boring if we only had smart goals. And I really encourage people to have longer-term, more ambitious goals in their lives. Yeah, it links with that that notion of that that purpose of emotional context. Um, it's like I, I think I heard the other day of someone setting a goal saying, "I want to, you know, sell fifteen thousand dollars," and then it's just like, "Okay, but why? Like, what's the reason for doing so? What's the the macro context, so to speak?" And I think that action part of focusing on the lead indicator, not just the lag, because I'm sure you've seen before in the startup world and Google Jet, like you can really get caught up on vanity metrics, and you can literally look at the trigger on and on and on without realizing that the cause and effect relationship is largely done by the activity set. Um, which makes a lot of sense to me as well. Mm. All right. And uh, just some last questions to, to wrap up. Uh, I feel like I have learned a lot or maybe reconfirmed some, some of what I've already read in a lot of your work before. And I had a bit of a personal question. What are some of the books you feel you that have had the biggest impact on um, the work you produce? In terms of uh, the way I work, uh, this is not a scientific book, but... On Writing by Stephen King has been transformational for me. I read it when I was in, I think, my mm. late teens or early 20s. And it really unlocked something in me in terms of, of writing because I always loved writing. I was writing, even as a kid, short stories, that kind of stuff. So that's something I always loved doing. But I also never ever published anything until quite late because I didn't think it was good enough. And seeing the way he worked was really helpful and gave me the confidence to learn in public. So um, the way he works is that he writes a thousand words a day, whatever happens. That's, I mean, but that's his full-time job. So I don't think everyone would be able, everyone would be able to do this. That's literally his full-time job. So Exactly. So he, he writes a thousand <laughs> words a day and um, he's a professional. He, whenever he feels like something is good enough, he just like publishes. Good enough means the best that he can do right now. But he knows that in the future he'll probably become better. So he just keeps on publishing. And when he, what he explains in the book is that he cringes so hard when he's looking back at his earlier work but that it's a good thing because if you look back at your earlier work and you still feel proud <laughs> of it, it means you haven't made any progress since then, which is pretty bad. So this is the way I've been writing and, and working in public for the past few years where I actually feel the exact same thing. If I look back at my earliest articles that I've published on Nest Labs, I'm like, whoa, this is so bad. Um, but it's good because I feel like the, the recent ones are, are becoming better and better and it means that I'm improving. So that's been really helpful for me. It means that I'm just publishing the best work I can publish, the best work I can publish today. 
and I know that this way I'm going to improve and I know it's not the best work ever or the best work I will produce over the course of my lifetime, but that's completely fine. It's just the best work I can produce today. So On Writing by Stephen King has been incredibly helpful in terms of um, being more creative, more productive, but also having the confidence to share my work in public. Um, and another book that I really enjoyed was How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan, um, which uh, kind of reminded me, I read it at the very beginning of my neuroscience studies at King's College, and it made me feel really excited about the potential of neuroscience, the potential of the brain and the mind, everything we still have to discover, and also how plastic our brain is and how much we can achieve with it if uh, you know I, i'm just very, very it made me really excited about all of the scientific research brain research neuroscience um even cognitive psychology etc so that was it was very timely for me as a student who was embarking on this journey of studying neuroscience to read this book at the very beginning of my studies and i highly recommend it especially if you're interested in the science of psychedelics this is a really good primer if you've never read anything about it before Wow. Yeah, the the first one uh, on writing, I, I just finished it. And to your point, it, it had a really big impact on me as well. I'm sure you saw that at the back where he's got um, like the first draft and the second draft. And I was I saw the second draft and just like so much crossing out, like this is bad, this is bad. And like gave me heart that like one of the, arguably one of the greatest writers of all time is literally crossing out um, no, I didn't massive have that amounts. One, and it was just more about you know, developing the writing like muscle, so to speak. Sure and, we, was that in your copy uh, as well? Nope, didn't see that. I would have loved to see it. It's probably online somewhere. Yeah, it was, it was crazy to see like literally half of it, half of it gone. Um, but the, in terms of the last question we've got for you, Anne Law, um, you know, we're all about brain tools here. And just to get your opinion on this, if you could leave the audience with one, you know, super practical brain tool um, for mindful productivity, what would it be that you'd want them to use? So one of the most popular tools that I've shared at Nest Labs, I really think that's the one most of my readers are using is called plus minus next journaling. It's super, super simple. I use it every week. I personally do it on Sunday evening, but you can do it whenever for a little weekly review. Basically, you take a piece of paper or you can do it on your laptop if you want, but it has three columns, plus, minus, and next. First column, plus, is everything that went well, minus everything that didn't go so well, and next, what you plan on focusing on for the week after. And that's something that lots of people told me. They tried journaling for so many years, never managed to stick to it because looking at a blank page, not they didn't know where to start. Um, it felt a little bit daunting or too much work. This is just simple bullet points. It can take five to 10 minutes max and you're done. So for anyone listening to this, who knows about the benefits of journaling, but has never managed to build the habit, this could be a nice tool to try. Yeah. That's amazing and so simple. I think that's the, the crux of any good tools. It has to be simple enough that anyone can use it without feeling overwhelmed. Um, I really like that. And I'm, I think I'm probably going to start using that. To be honest, I haven't yet, but that's something I'm definitely going to implement. I'll, I'll let you know. I'll let, let you know how I go after this Sunday. 
seconds. Here we go. Uh, we just wanted to say thank you so much for your time today uh, and more. We've learned so much from you and it's been an absolute pleasure. I'm sure so many of the Brainstorms community after listening to this will be keen to connect with you in some way, shape or form to follow more of your work like we have. Where can people go to find out about more about you and what you do? Yeah, I think the easiest is just to go to nestlabs.com. And if you want to have a look at the newsletter, it's nestlabs.com slash newsletter. Fantastic. That works well. And I can definitely vouch for this in my inbox, literally morning read, send it to my girlfriend all the time. So definitely jump on that Brain Tools community if you haven't already. But yeah, thank you so much, Anne-Lil, for your time. Um, and thank you Thanks for, being on for the show. having me. And thanks everyone for listening. We'll, we'll see you next week.